Hey, this is Dunn. Yo, this is Mims. And you listening to Cabbage's Hip Hop Podcast. School. Get it. Gary Suarez. I'm a music journalist and critic, and I write a twice-weekly hip-hop newsletter called Cabbages, which you can subscribe to for free at cabbageshiphop.com. Joining me as always is my 420-friendly co-host, music industry insider Jeffrey Lachlan. It's season three of the podcast, for those of you who pay attention to that sort of thing, and this one's all about stoner comedies. And today, we'll be talking about The Beach Bum, the 2019 Harmony Korean film that the New York Times called, quote, transgression as pure tedium. Now we'll get into the show in just a minute. But please, if you're listening and you haven't done this already, please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. If you could rate the show five stars, that would be even better. And if you could do all that and write a review, well, that'd be all right, all right, all right. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Back in a sec. foremost the the casual bong usage the the cbu rate on this bad boy was fantastic they had they brought a bomb to the wedding and we're just ripping that thing this is the world that i want like i want to go to these things and be like look guys I brought my own bong i don't need to be pressured into drinking i'm just gonna get don't you already live in that world like don't you just i can't just like take my bong around places no you get like real sneers no. Well, have you tried, and I know in one of the kind of montage scenes, uh, <laughs> have you tried the uh, gas mask uh, bong? No. Uh, there's a great scene. Uh, I don't know if you recall, because there's so many visuals. Oh, uh, man. McConaughey in a thong, yes. riding a bicycle, Correct. wearing a gas mask bong. Yes. And just like crushing it. Over and over. It's just like five seconds in Mm -hmm. in a full movie, and holy shit, we've watched so many truly awful films uh, on this show. This movie really kind of lifted my spirits. I don't know what our guests are going to think of it because, in full disclosure, Jeff and I are not young men. No, we are. You know. I'm firmly within midlife. Jeff is clinging to the last vestiges of, of his youth. I'll, uh, I'll let you in a little hint, buddy. I, I let that the, the last vestiges go a long time ago. Uh, I'm good at, at just being called middle-aged. I'm done with youth. The foul stench of youth has been washed from me. Says the man who wants to carry a bong around to private How is that? How is that anything having to do with youth? How? It's- it's it's Is childish. It it's childish. Walking around with a bottle of liquor in the street because it's legal. 
that bot i would be more scared of that dude with a bottle of liquor and i would be with me or bong all i'm saying is that our guest today and we have not one not two but three three guests three guests today unless somebody cancels um three guests <laughs> today you know that's the caveat mm-hmm. who are younger than us by at least a decade. Don't you think if that more. does a favor to this movie, though? Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, I think we'll see how uh, how universal this is or not. So I'm looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. I tell you what, everyone is going to have to understand that "On and On" by Steve Bishop is a it Jamsville population jams. The train has left. It has arrived at Jamstown all passenger exit what and she smiles when she feels like gary on and on on and on on and on we'll be right back I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today's show. Joining us now is journalist Joshma Wadera. You can find her work at outlets including Brown Girl Magazine and Central Sauce. Also joining us is the hip-hop duo Mims and Dunn. Their album is called Infinite Lawn, available on Bandcamp and wherever music is streamed or sold. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hello. I'm here too, Gary. I didn't ask about you. It's probably worth bringing up the film that the director, Harmony Corinne, or Harmony Korean, I say it both ways, uh, did before this, and that's Spring Breakers. And I'm wondering if, uh, if, if any of you on this call have, have seen Spring Breakers or have any strong opinions about that movie. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah we- it was all right. Now, now, Joshua, it seems to me you weren't like blown away by that one. Yeah, but you felt seen, right, Gary? It's in, in places, in places I did. Uh, you know, like... Yeah. I mean, like, Britney Spears is, like, my age. <laughs> so it's like when they're doing the piano karaoke uh, outside, I, you know, I felt that. Listen, I love Britney, too, but not Spring Breakers, Britney. Mm. Yeah, Spring, Spring Breakers wasn't, wasn't a favorite or, or yeah, wasn't a favorite. James Franco and the cornrows. I don't know about yeah, we, didn't, we didn't need that one. I was kind of worried. I was, I was wondering when that was going to come up, and it's early. That's Thank good. God. Go, yeah, yeah, let's just jump it. right into it. Let's we had get to talk shit about on that dude all day long. He ruins it. Because having Gucci in the movie doesn't cancel that out. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't cancel getting uh, Bargain Basement riffraff into the film. Yeah. No, nah, literally. I mean, at least, at least, you know, Riff Raff got some bars, but you know. I liked it when he said that his his car seats were made out of pterodactyls. See, there you go. Like that's that was pretty. Cool. That's fucking entertaining. Man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's about it. The, I bring it up because there was this discourse around that film that was like, oh, it's like it's speaking to a generation. It's like a film of that time. And the same thing happened with another Harmony Current film from when I was a teenager, uh, the movie Kids. 
was kind of built like this is this is that generation like this is me this is my generation and i'm like that's not i wasn't i mean that wasn't it wasn't it wasn't i i don't agree with that i hate kids and i hate gummo and i'll and and i hated them then i i don't hate them but i feel like I feel like the way that people conceptualize them and like I like idolize those movies mm. is kind of fucked up. Yeah, I mean that's not it. Like you need a le- at least a little bit of a plot to put that much weight onto something and and refer to it as the purveyor of the time or the generation. Uh, especially um, when people talk about that movie in reference to AIDS, I feel like they're. There was a lot of other um, movies specifically centering like black people, black queer people that uh, that um, painted the canvas better. But I do, I do, I do agree with um, with the movies painting vivid pictures of the generations and the cultures. Even um, even the beach bomb I was talking about when when I was in Florida with my dad, and I was just like, yeah, this is. This this is giving Florida very much so. Yeah, that when- was the thing too with, with, with Spring Breakers. Was Spring Breakers was a, a very specific kind of Florida. Like I think Harmony Korine has done a, a pretty good job of sort of making films about Florida life. Whether or not you think they are good films is an entirely different story. But like I think sort of capturing a vibe of what was happening, what what happens down there, it it, it feels well, a bit right. It feels a bit right. It all sort of ties into this thing that I've had with this dude for a long time, where there are scenes that are good, but the plot advancing them are like really cruel and horribly circumstantial to where it's like, let's see what happens if we just like destroy these people's lives. And they already are like having a rough go or don't have a lot going on for them. And it's like, okay, I get it. Like things are weird and sad and terrible. But your particular vision of weird and sad and terrible really sucks. It fucking sucks. Then the beach bum came and blew my brain right out of my head. We really enjoyed the beach bum. I love this fucking movie. We enjoyed this movie. It's so ridiculous. But like, there's something about Harmony Corinne and what he's kind of tried to do. And he's older than both Jeff and I. I think he's born in like 73. So this is a man who's pushing 50 at this point. Trying to write these sorts of films his influence has been something like I keep thinking about like the the emo rappers who who kind of jumped on that wave like it's like you know and I certainly think about six nine you know you don't name a song gummo without having some sort of uh, reference uh point mm-hmm. to go yeah. with so like it, it has such a crazy impact like uh, going to high school so many kids were obsessed with gummo and kids yeah and, like to the point where it was um it like they wanted to live, they wanted to recreate it. So they kind of fucked themselves over in, um, in such a passion towards those movies. The, and I, I definitely cannot deny how impactful those movies are, especially Gummo. When I, when I, when I seen it, my, I feel like I was shaking as I was watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to like yeah. challenge you. And I think when you're, when you're young, there are, especially when you're a teen, there's these types of films that get, if you get exposed to them, they may not necessarily connect with you as like a, 
this is what I want to do with my life, but it's just like, oh, it's a different kind of movie than the things that like I've been getting from you know Disney films or I've been getting from Family Fair or just from Hollywood in general, or like perversely fascinated by them. But he takes it, he takes a different course with the beach bum, something that's closer to his generation. It's a film that is about adults for the vast majority of it, and it's adults behaving badly. And so um, had anybody seen The Beach Bum prior to being asked to be on this podcast? No. No. I didn't even know it existed. Neither did I. Like, even though, like, obviously we've talked about, like, the impact that sort of some of these previous films had, those never really hit anyone's radar here. Yeah, no. And it's interesting because I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like there was just, like, a specific, like, cultural moment, I guess, like... A few years ago for me for like um because you know we was earlier to talk about uh gummo yeah um because uh i remember liking the mixtape by mac miller faces a lot mm-hmm. um, polo jeans he like interpolates that um remember like just like going back watching old movies at the time and looking at belly gummos and belly yeah like that too um but uh damn i forgot where i was even gonna go <laughs> <laughs> i think the movie sort of uh guides you that way though yeah um <laughs> just forget what you're doing do something else yeah, yeah. Uh, every time i looked at the screen on beach Bum, i was like okay wait what just happened yeah <laughs> nah but it was um oh no nah, that's what i was gonna say um nah it's interesting that it did not come up on my radar because like like every time like i looked up like at the screen i was like oh like okay so um jonah hill's like here like oh okay bet like um fucking uh what's what's his name Mar- martin lawrence it's just like yeah the best character but martin lawrence just like gets his foot eight off yeah. i didn't realize harmony also worked on mid 90s which makes sense yeah it's really interesting that he chose to do a film like this to follow up and used i think the clout from that to bring together a cast that people largely recognize. Mm-hmm. He brought on Snoop. He brought on Zac Efron. He brought on, Buffett. you know, obviously Matthew McConaughey <laughs> is as the star. You've got Isla Fisher. It, it felt very much like one of those holiday movies, like the parody ones where all the... <laughs> yeah. It was just something to see an art house sort of interpretation of a stoner comedy where mm-hmm. if not for a few elements, and for a few uh, deviations, it, this is as absurd as any stoner comedy. The plot goes off into directions. You meet up with crazy characters. Uh, Cartoonish Cheech and Chong, right? Just, but they win. Like they, they just do- like did things very high and there were consequences instead of it just being hilarious. Yeah, like Cheech and Chong, I, I think about Howard and Kumar. I think about all these films where like crazy shit happens, but in the end, they win. Like he wins in the end, theoretically. Although I do want to talk about that. He gets to publish his book and he gets all the money and he mm-hmm. wins a Pulitzer. You know, like all he wins a Pulitzer, a Pulitzer Prize. I, I feel like regardless, <laughs> he was winning though. Yeah. I feel like he never really stopped winning because it, his success was a figment of his imagination. It wasn't measured by anybody else. Hmm. So the losses taken are low but they're of great stakes. Whether or not we ever really see him process the idea, his wife does die. And he does go to rehab for around what seems like three or four days. 
Uh, and there's the incredible courtroom scene uh, where he's handed punishment. I feel like he was still chilling, though. Yeah, I do. Like he was just waiting on the opportunity to bust out and do the damn thing. Just- yeah, I mean, I, I think he was just like, I'm going to go and I'm going to leave and then I'm going to go back to doing whatever it is that I do. Yeah. Like, you wasn't in court, bro. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, you don't know, but I know that I'm still in Ibiza. You know, like, he he wasn't there. There's a lens to look at this film. um, And that... That's like 17 bong hits is that the lens no that, that, well that's <laughs> because the, that's the one i went for <laughs> that's the haze in which to view this film right but right. a lens in which to view this film is that it's a film about white privilege is that here's this guy who's basically been flouting the law for decades i mean it's not the first time he's shown up in court clearly because they're clearly they're at a certain point but like he's been able to get away with a lot up until this point and when he does go scot-free this this man who is a sore thumb anywhere he goes and is known by name in Key West manages to hide from the law in plain sight for the longest time. That's deeply unusual to me that this would happen if you're not, if you're not going to view this film through the lens of, Oh, this is, this is a, a glaring example of white privilege. But I think that we know that, right? Like I think that that, somehow feels familiar to me in stoner films and film at large of seeing that this batshit crazy, ugly internal truths playing themselves out being super normal and fine and grandiose and almost celebratory is something that we see as a white male narrative frequently, Mm. um, specifically around substance, right? Like lean with it, rock with it. It's a whole vibe. Kids are inspired by it. It was a time. It holds this deep sense of nostalgia the color grading, the the soundtrack, the score. But I, I think we look at it that way because we're so conditioned to think that how human is it for him to live this absurd life and it work out for him? Because that's, that's how everything works out. And then we also try to balance that out in our minds as stoner comedies are meant to be escapism. Mm. Whereas it is meant, they're not meant necessarily like well, a lot of other also films in this who one, exist in this like, world. He's embarrassingly rich, which is actually the inverse of most of the films we've seen. Yeah, It's mostly broke dudes trying to use weed as a way to get high, first and foremost, because it's a stoner comedy, uh, but also to make money to get out of poverty. Like at no point, this dude was so rich his whole life that, or however long he was with his wife, I guess, uh, that he at no point had a wheelbarrow full of weed and tried to sell it to like take care of himself. I also feel like it kind of like it could have done more with weed. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I feel like I don't see weed as much as I wanted to. Really? He had yeah. a gas mask yeah, on. Of, <laughs> I don't know if that was enough for me. You know what I'm like? They they robbed a, a, a handicapped man, even though they were loaded and they could have just sold the weed. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an incredible like film. it, it like, come and watch a stoner film i really want them to have some like innovative entrepreneurship okay i want you to be like i don't know i'm gonna sell the cheetos we're gonna we're gonna sell the weed and we're gonna and there was none of that there was none of that didn't they do that in um kid cannabis i don't even remember what happened like that though i will say this the the amount of casual bong usage or as i like to call it cbu uh was jesus christ scary <laughs> was 
was incredibly good. Like there were at least four different scenes and there's not that many, many films that, that feature CBU. So I felt like- maybe, Jeff, I love the acronym. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like maybe that carried me over for how much, uh, how much weed, there was a lot more drinking than weed it feels like, but I felt like that I at least- I feel like I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this, but the opening scene where he poured beer down the cat's mouth <laughs> or the cat drank it, I, in my head, I was just like, that feels Floridian. Totally. But, but like, <laughs> why, why does that feel Floridian to me? I said the same, I was like, well, what are you gonna do? We're in Florida. I remember us texting, Gary and I text during the first viewing of the film a lot. And we just kept texting all caps, Florida, <laughs> Florida. Just yeah, over it was Florida. very much Florida. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. Have any, have any of us lived in Florida or do we just, did we watch too many stoner movies and we think this is Florida? Nah, yes. One thing that does sort of blow my mind uh, is less the casual bong usage. Sorry, Jeff. But the amount of times that pushing is used as a form of aggression. Oh, yeah. Really, I got the wedding type. All the violence is pushing. When Zac Efron... Uh, his character Flicker and Moondog escape the the rehab facility. They you know basically crash someone's wedding, steal their motorboat, and push the groom into the water for no reason other than mischief. You know they push over the uh, the man in the wheelchair to rob him. More probably one of the more serious things that happens in it. Um, there's a lot of pushing. They push at the very beginning though. Moondog pushes the guy blowing the the tuba for the horn. <laughs> into the water and just laughs. That's in like the first like five minutes. It's the first five minutes that happens. When he goes to the daughter's wedding and just pushes the old lady wheelchair yes. into the wall. Why does it happen? It's as if nothing happened, <laughs> like it happened so quickly. This woman just goes careening off and then like he goes Harmony to give a careening. speech. <laughs> For fuck's sake, <laughs> Yo, that was so, come on, Gary. You gotta hand me that one. He said, don't worry, that's not my mom. <laughs> that was exactly you know, he says, you know that's not my vibe. <laughs> and, and and that's and that's that's supposed to like make you feel better that like, oh well, that, that was did. just some, some others totally some other did. some strange lady who was a guest at the wedding, possibly <laughs> from the from the from that limp dick groom side of the family. Oh, that was crazy. <laughs> I want to ask: Did anybody at any point uh, sympathize with the groom? Nah. The the limp dick one. Yes. No, I mean, he was no. that. You know, she's crazy. Frankie B. No, I hate that guy. And I was like, <laughs> I wasn't fully on Moondog's side the entire movie, despite uh, being captivated. But in that particular case, him just outwardly telling his daughter over and over again, this is stupid, was great to me. I was like, yes. I also loved when he asked her when she became such a Republican. Oh, it was so good. Oh, From the other side of the, uh, the minimum security jail, whatever, where he was in, where he could like see her from the <laughs> fence. I, don't, I have never been inside any kind of Florida lockup, but I'm like, wait, that exists? In Florida? Because I feel like Florida is the kind of place where when they lock you up, it's not a place you can just kind of like hang out with your cool vagrant friends and talk to people on the street through fences. But maybe that's what it is. Maybe your cat drinks beer and that's how you live. 
<laughs> Yo, I think that I think that harmony in general makes you know like movies in in general are like obviously like an interpolation or like a a larger than life version of something, which to me doesn't usually bode well in stoner comedies. Uh, but I feel like in this particular case, the bombast was like fully shared. All of these people were completely insane. And when you're at that point, you attract other folks that yeah. like want to do what you're doing because you're outward and effusive. And there's like a line of people that are like, yep, I'm rolling with this person. We're going to have a good time. Fun people okay, find but, fun people. But Jeff, mm -hmm. in the hospital, oh, yeah. when, when his wife dies, he's caressing her eyebrow. Oh, and then after she dies and codes, he continues to only hold her eyebrow. And I feel like if it's a real stoner comedy, I needed like a higher sensory gauge hmm. outside of just the oral sex obsession. Like I, I was hoping he would like hold her face and be like, you know, just captivated with a dead, that sounds way worse than I wanted it. Yeah. Uh, it uh, that's a different kind of movie, Joshua. <laughs> but <laughs> there he was just caressing her eyebrow. He had smoked that incredible stuff with uh, with Snoop with lingerie beforehand that he seems to still be feeling the effects of at that point. There was a lot going on there. I felt like that was actually meant to be, and and there's a magical realism to the way the movie is made because it's made to sort of be like a long drug binge. You know what I mean? Uh, a long drink. Like a binge. rooster on a couch. Totally. <laughs> like a rooster on a couch. That feels Florida so, too. The totally the the film is shot in this way that sort of makes it confusing how much time has passed. And to me, their like last, like the drive that they take out of the bar, like, I want to go for a drive. He's like, you want to go drive? And they go drive. I feel like that's supposed to represent like a long bender. There's a couple of scenes where it seems like there's daylight and they've done way too many things for it to be like a crazy night in the middle of the night. So I feel like time like they were just on the end of a crazy bender and she got in a wreck. So do we think Zac Efron got the haircut and, and, and the fade before a crazy bender on a crazy bender, kept it the whole time? I think that his life is a crazy bender. So there's no mm -hmm. real way to know when the, hit, when, the, when the haircut came. The last time I saw Zac Efron was in that Netflix show called Down to Earth where him and what's his name go to all those different blue zone areas in the world and figure out why people live really long. Um, and then I watched this movie and I was like, oh, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. What'd y'all think about Snoop Dogg? I personally uh, thought that was an incredible performance from Snoop Dogg. I thought he was great. There was this amazing chemistry between lingerie and Moondog. And it wasn't one-sided. It was very clearly this beautiful balance between the two. And I think that Snoop shows up in some films and picks up a check. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's times in his life where he has made amazing art, and then there's times where he's picked up the check. Mm. This film is a testament to his talent. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that. I always think it's funny seeing Snoop Dogg in movies, though, because he very much just plays Snoop Dogg also. Yeah, you know, while I appreciate that sentiment, I just think Snoop being Snoop is 
just brilliant because there's no way to lean in or out of that. It's just his existence they're relying on for that type of comedy and that type of presence. Why he's always, for the most part, is in a lot of stoner comedy and movies like this. Because it's like, we we know that you will do this, A, uh, and B, uh, we know that you will nail it because you don't have to try. Like some of my favorite lines in this movie are Snoop Dogg lines. Like his comedic awareness is so good when he's officiating the wedding. Mm. And after uh, Moondog has belittled Limp Dick and actually grabbed his (laughs) Limp Dick, uh, five inches flaccid, I think is what he said uh, in that moment. Snoop (laughs) says, lingerie says, you in a world of motherfucking problems with this family, they're fucked up. He just says that in that moment. I'm like, that's legit funny. I also... When he was delivering, like when he was practicing his speech and what he had written down disgusted him so much that he like corrected himself. He was like, I would never say that. I would never say that. <laughs> I would never say like that, that might've just been the script he was rejecting at that it, point. That's what I'm saying. Like it's yeah. possible that he was like, oh no, I'm not saying no dearly beloved bullshit. You guys crazy? Yeah. I think, I think his character him. was weirdly realistic also yeah. to like the Florida experience, but not just the Florida experience, but like, I know, I know, like a few Rastas out in Florida, and they love they love rich white people because they be smoking big dope with them. They they love the stories, and they got they got the money for the weed. So when I when I seen like his relationship, and I seen all the Rastas at the funeral, I thought that was very funny because I, I could definitely see that happening in real life. One of the great things about this film is that it feels like any of these these people who kind of play secondary or even cameo roles could have, it could have, it's in all, in another director's hands or in, in another person's hands could have been its own movie. Yeah. I could definitely see like a specifically moon dog lingerie movie where they get into business serious together. I could definitely see that. Yeah. They just get on the, the, the seaplane, the chronic aviation uh, <laughs> name of that plane. And uh, I could I could see a movie about how Minnie made her million. The rise of Minnie. Yeah. Like I somehow feel like she's a real estate mogul that uh, made a few bad cocaine investments that went right later on. And also, like it felt like a lot of people there were born into this system as well. Like they just don't have an understanding of like, oh, we'll just leave and go party. Like I have been arrested and told never to go back to my house until I complete a book or whatever. So I'm going to hire and enlist essentially a, a group of bums to come in and destroy the place. Like what a choice, what a choice. And that seems like the choice of someone who's never really had to worry about any of it. There's some mention when the, uh, when the executor of her will says something to the extent of she wasn't gonna let you Moondog blow her family's fortune. And so it does seem like that she does come from money, but I think her story is bigger than that because oh, totally. how does her character become involved with somebody like Moondog and get intertwined into that world? And she's clearly such a free spirited character. Like there, there's a lot more to explore in that. I think we get these little glimpses of, of each of these characters. Mm-hmm. It's easy to kind of look at this thinking that the world exists around Moondog, but what we're actually doing is we're just getting glimpses at really interesting people. Like Zac Efron's Flicker is a very interesting person. This the child of a pastor, apparently, mm-hmm. who likes to start fires um, and <laughs> huff paints. Uh, I liked that he. I liked that he got, got caught a few times. 
and he should be maybe, a hero. Maybe it's been a minute since I watched High School Musical. Mm. Okay, <laughs> but like this, this, this felt very Zac Efron to me. Is there? I feel like this is Zac Efron in every movie. I I know nothing about that guy. No, no, no. I, I think that's really entirely until now. Basically, I think that's so really well put because it's just like some of these actors kind of get the freedom to do a film like this where they don't have to like they can make choices as actors. Zac Efron just like I'm gonna play a version of a Zac Efron character, you know, versus Jonah Hill who says I'm gonna come through with this ridiculous Kentucky Derby ass accent and just say <laughs> shit. No, I said he very much thought he was black for a minute with that accent. <laughs> it's just in the New York Times, the review that A.O. Scott did of this film, he said that accent was somewhere between Truman Capote and Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah. And I I thought that was pretty fucking brilliant because it's like, yeah. yep, that that that's there. But yeah, there's there's weird choices that that people make. I think one of the best characters in this film, and Jeff, I know, agrees with me because he's probably sitting there on his hands, just waiting for me to say it's Captain it's Captain Whack, it's Martin Lawrence. Exactly. Exactly. This is the wildest thing. Without that, like, it's the most cuttable scene in the movie. It adds nothing. Nobody like really knows the dude outside of our main character. Nobody outside in the other parts of the world know this dude. It's just a very one-off thing. You could cut it from the movie and the plot wouldn't suffer for a second. But if you cut it from the movie, the movie fucking sucks. Sucks. Because Martin Lawrence crushes this role. No, he went crazy. Fantastic. He went crazy. I I rewound that the second time I watched the whole scene again. Because this man that purportedly loves dolphins swims directly into what I can only really call a shark's nest, a nest of sharks. Can we say that? Yeah. Uh, a real thing. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, what a what a character. He turned this film around. No, nah, and I feel like um, I feel like Loki um Harmony Corinne is like good at that. Like, and I feel like um I feel like this movie might have been like, I feel like maybe the best for me. Um, like in that, um, I feel, I feel like he provides like this, like intimacy with like his characters. Um, and I feel like you very much so get that in this movie. Like, I feel like, and and not in any, um, other movie I've seen of his before. Like, I feel like in, you know, like in Gummo, they have like these, um, these intimate moments that are like, I feel like more like cinematic type shit. Yeah. Um, but in, in this movie, it's just like. Oh, like it's almost like it's almost like um the beach bum could have been like a graphic novel for something like sure. Oh yeah, and the the shots, you know, firework shots, driving shot, everything is very lovely. It does allow for somebody like Martin Lawrence to come in and shine in this film, the way that this is presented. Um, it's important to remember that like he hadn't done a movie in like mm-hmm. nearly a decade. The last thing was like I think. I guess it was the third Big Mama's House, like yeah. Father, Like Son. He, Boy, I forgot that existed. That was the last one that he had oh. done. And then he did, I think, a TV show with Kelsey Grammer that got one season that didn't get a lot of coverage. And then he hadn't done another movie. And he comes back for this. To me, it's sort of the stoner comedy equivalent of Joe Pesci coming back for The Irishman. I think that's what Harmony does well, though, right? It's the juxtaposition of 
share these incredible Floridian sunsets and this opulence and this insane color grading. And then here are these extremely absurd characters that you know and you love and maybe you love in a slightly different context like Martin Lawrence was in this film or it's like Snoop Dogg where it's, it's exactly what you expect. Um, and, and I think that's part of his genius. So normally in stoner movies, the stoners are outcasts, right? Like their normal society looks upon them with scorn. But what if everyone around you is cool with it? It looks like this, like he was comfortable sliding into any conversation or any person. Yeah. He could just slide into the scene and they were like, oh shit, Moondog. All right, I like Moondog. You know what I mean? And I think that's, to me, was like, it was so inviting, even when things were terrible in the movie, everyone was still like inviting and cool and like loved each other uh, immensely in short amounts, short bursts of time. I don't know, man. It, this one really got me. Did Minnie give anyone else Jessica Rabbit meets like Velma uh, energy? Now she does, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might have thought. good. It's like, this is a character I think would definitely we'd love to see more of. And that's a, a reflection of a good film is that if you have multiple characters who get some time on screen and you go, I would love to know more about this character, then they've done a good job. Plus like there's a, there's a cool thing going on there where like that's what it's like when someone dies young, right? Because you're like, oh mm. man, they would have loved this. This would have been so yeah. cool to see more of. Yeah, mm-hmm. it nailed yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. It, that character was spot on perfect you wanted to know more and more and then they were taken too soon i mean i think i think the way she died too was um really interesting like them playing chicken on the road yeah on the other side of the road and it's it's not even him driving even though they're both drunk and like inebriated like she's driving like she has full power right that was that was definitely a crazy scene and i think like it happened so quickly but holds a very big amount of weight of thought in the movie if you decide to think about it. And it's a choice too, because the director could have easily put Moondog in that position and made him go through a moral dilemma. But yeah. instead, he lets Minnie be the driver. There's there's a metaphor laying there too, right? Like when he's around her, he's not in control of the fun. Like she's just a fun person and he can just yeah, relax. Exactly. And then in all the other situations, he's got to be like, you want to get out of here? And he throws a chair through a window and he's like, well, let's go. <laughs> let's get the fuck out of here. Through his typewriter. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He threw a typewriter through a window and was like, well, problem solved. <laughs> he has to be the problem solver for people. Yeah, we get that perspective where we're allowed to either really latch onto something or really let go. That's, I think, one of the beauties of stoner comedies is that we can either fixate on the minutia, which we do a lot on the show, or also just be like, ah, it's just a bunch of people who are getting high. That's cool. Yeah, he <laughs> does a great job on that also. And several of his movies, I feel like. There's the destruction of the piano. And I just go back to the Spring Breakers scene uh, around the piano with the Britney Spears karaoke. And I feel like it's like that was one of the scenes from that film from from Spring Breakers that was so, so emblematic of the film and was just the thing that people fixated on. Like that was one of those things just like, wow, that was a moment. If you were in the theaters and you saw that, like that was a thing. So like that kind of wanton destruction of that to me just feels like it's a nod back to Spring Breakers, but also kind of a fuck you to it. It's sort of just like, I feel like that 
that moment in this film, in my view, is is a response to Spring Breakers, but is also a reflection of the nature of Harmony Korine's work as a filmmaker, where mm. there is that nihilistic streak and there is that destructive streak that goes through it. I think a disregard for opulence or things of material value like the piano also reminds us that it's kind of just about Moondog and Moondog's life and being in Moondog's head. There's like that scene where it suddenly turns like momentarily art house where he's jamming in the rain by himself. Yes. And you're like, I was like, wait, am I in a Bollywood movie? I'm a little bit into it, a little bit not. Um, but there's something about that, right? About how his absurdity does not rely on opulence or on wealth. And maybe that's because he has the luxury to dismiss it. Maybe he, because he has the luxury to have it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe because it has nothing to do with anything outside of his own reflection of himself and his like hedonism. That brings me, that brings me to something here where like, we haven't really discussed that the end of this film is him burning $50 million and floating away into a sunrise. Like all the things that I had lined up to be mad about were blown up. Yeah. Like, fuck this. I don't care about this. This money isn't fun. Fun is had, it's a spiritual thing. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think when I was thinking about that part, it made me for the first time in the movie think of him as an artist. Right. Which we don't really like pay attention fully, but it's there that he is yes a poet writing this novel. Uh, along with being a rich stoner and with everything that he's doing. And that was really the part in the movie where I was like, yeah, he's an he's an artist. And like in the end, like I think like even the dancing in the rain scene was maybe like 20 minutes towards the end. That was like a lot of the time where I started reflecting on him more as an artist and just mm. like the like basic acknowledgements or like the more like frontal conscious acknowledgements that we have of him throughout the movie. I didn't really like his poetry, but like regardless of that point, you you can't disconnect him from being an artist as a character. What you get in that, and honestly, you get in that last 15 minutes of movie is this guy who's like, okay, I have the things that I need to drive my art. I have the experiences that I've collected and I have the chemical, you know, I have the the herbal, I think you've read an excellent point. It's like, is that we see him now as an artist. Him winning a, a, a Pulitzer is, is kind of a, a nice touch in, an, in, in a narrative, but it's like getting on that boat and burning the money away and not being upset about it. But there's hints dropped throughout the movie of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like people follow him and stuff. And it's very obvious to me that they know his art. The judge says, you know, specifically, mm -hmm. I was wildly touched by your, your, your work. It's probably gotten you off most of the times that you've been in here, but we're not doing it anymore. But, you know, she acknowledges that she's like a huge fan. And there's periods in the movie, very short little montages of him typing and like constantly writing, but none of it seems to be meaningful because he treats it poorly. Yeah. If that makes sense. And the more, the more I think about it too, um, when we say like, it's not that similar to other stoner movies as 
the point in this one is that he's rich. We we're also like reminded at a like a lower level of conversation in the movie that he's not really rich. Right. Um, but has been coddled his whole life. And it's like once he's on the boat and the money's aflame, then it's like, all right, this this is our our actual, you know, typical, sto- you know, like stoner hero boy. You feel me? Yeah, yeah. And that that like now that I think about that part, I think that's pretty cool. That that like the ending definitely tied a knot and makes you reflect on the movie more so in the reality that it is. Yeah, and, and away from the money, he was living in a like small spot that he like fished out the window, which I just thought was incredible and now want to do all the time. <laughs> I want to fish out of a window right now. I don't want to, I would rather leave here, fish out of a window. That's is, is there much fishing where you are in, uh, in Bed-Stuy? Not as much as I'd like, Gary. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for asking. No, no worries. <laughs> that final scene where the fireworks display leads to a fire causes a an explosion on the boat with all of his money and the last things we see are him in a boat with his name painted on the side holding the cat that he's rescued from the boat he named the boat after himself it's his moon dog on the side of the boat but the thing that the thing that gets that got me especially on a second viewing was I started to wonder this, and I want to get your perspective on this. Do you think Moondog survived the boat explosion? Is that him alive and leaving, or is him is that him laughing his way to hell? I feel like it could it could even be that that was him finishing what he had to do on Earth. Like he he died way before with Minnie. We could also, mm. and that he had to make things correct before he could finally you know transfer on and um i I like that you brought that up because that that's a question that also brings that up but i i haven't thought about it till now yeah no i also haven't thought about it too but i feel like now that uh give us some thought like i think it would make sense um just just throughout the movie like i don't know if if I, if you know, if it makes sense to say, like, in the canon, like, of the Beach Bum, as like literally a singular movie, um, but it's like, isn't isn't it like the point that he just like always wins? You know what I mean? Like how he just like he's just like always just like unscathed. Like it seems like like just through, even even as um you know like Jeff pointed out uh, earlier like. You know, like he he loses his wife. It's like even even like though there's like little losses, like the losses are like very very significant. He still just like kind of just you know rises out of that shit like and just like doesn't give a fuck like at all. Yeah, those are like earthly losses. Yeah, so you know it's like those are earthly losses. 